Welcome to this week's episode of Stand Out, growing in the organizing and productivity profession brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Every episode, we will learn from NAPO members and subject matter experts as they share their successes, challenges, best practices, proven strategies, industry developments, and more. And now, here's your host, Claire Kumar, NAPO member since 2010. Hi, and welcome to another episode of NAPO's podcast, Stand Out. I'm your host, Claire Kumar, Productivity Catalyst and longtime NAPO member, and thrilled to be with you. Thrilled to be with you today because we're talking about a very interesting topic who's going to be useful to anybody out there who's connecting virtually, which is everybody out there. A lot of things have shifted with the pandemic and perhaps nothing more than the way we communicate. We're unable to have close, intimate conversation with people the way we used to. And to take care of ourselves and others, we mask up, we smile more with our eyes than ever before, or we might be opting out of communication because it's difficult and we haven't got the natural contacts that we have. We're we're talking through masks and plastic barriers. In hindsight, I think it was an ideal time if we understood the challenges coming up to learn sign language. But since probably most of us aren't there, we need to learn more effective ways to be communicating in this virtual space. And I'm really thrilled to have with us today a body language expert, Alison Henderson. And she's going to shed light on this topic for us. So let me tell you a little bit about Alison. She's got over two decades of training and teaching movement. She's developed proven strategies for improving how you give and receive, that's interesting, body language signals to create powerful communication. So the eye roll would be perhaps not a recommended way to receive incoming body language signals. She's one of only 22 certified movement pattern analysts in the world. Modern challenges of digital communications and masks has brought her to the TEDx stage. I've watched a video, six minutes and change, very well worth your time and numerous multimedia um, publications. Her company, Moving Image Consulting, specializes in helping clients move from confusing or overwhelming communications to clear, confident, and I love this word, concise speakers. Allison continues to serve the best and brightest leaders as a TEDx speaker coach. So if anybody out there is thinking of hitting the TEDx stage as I am, keep Allison in your Rolodex. And she's a key contributor to the Labinarium in London. I looked this up. It's an online international resource and network center for the movement community. She also teaches at the College of DuPage, which is in Illinois. She's also the co-artistic director of Reckless Ensemble Theater. So without further ado, Alison, welcome. And thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited about this conversation. And I wanted to start with a question for you around... How have you seen communication challenges change over the last few months? I mean, the challenges have always been there, and this is a specialty of yours. What's different now? That is a wonderful place to start because I really believe that at the very beginning of this work from home, and it is really quite a revolution that we have been through communication-wise from literally overnight or in the course of a weekend, everybody went on Zoom. 
And we've taught everybody from, as my TED Talk says, you know, our preschoolers to our great grandparents. Everybody had to be taught how to somehow get online, whether it's Google Teams or Google Classroom or the Zoom call. Or at the very beginning, there was this panic. What do we do? How do we do this? And then all, of course, the funny memes of who's on mute and can you hear me and people getting up and walking away pantsless. And, you know, and all of those things that companies right at the very beginning, I think we're oh my gosh, we need to pro- we need to teach our teams how to do this. And everybody needs to learn how to do this. And so there was this kind of flurry of activity right away, that April, May timeframe. Suddenly I seemed to be very busy when I converted myself to training people how to come to the virtual call. And then over the summer, it sort of seemed like people kind of got lax again, just a little bit. Like everybody was reaching this Zoom fatigue place where they kind of started to not care again. And lighting started to go down the tubes where people were showing up, not necessarily doing the hair and makeup for the meeting or, you know, and those sorts of things started to wane again, right? At the very beginning, everybody was given a pass because it was this new thing and we were all struggling and kids were home and all of that sort of thing. Then then there kind of came this point of, okay, this is working better than we thought. And now it's kind of back to this point of, okay, we're going to be doing this for a lot longer than maybe we first thought. And so we do need to bring some training back to our folks. Or even if they don't bring the training, there needs to be a level of expectation. There needs to be some polish in your presence. There certainly does. And people, I think, have coming around again, particularly for service-oriented businesses where face-to-face is how we've always done business. And I panic just like everybody else. I mean, I do all of my training live. I mean, this was, oh my goodness. And there was a little bit of a hiccup in my business of people, I think, not believing that we could learn or that you can learn in this forum. And now they've kind of gone to the other place of like, oh, wow, look at all the money that we can save on travel and things if we do come up with virtual events. And there are so many new businesses now that are working in that virtual to make virtual events better and to bring that kind of meeting experience to a different level. So I think it's going to continue. I think we're just at the very beginning of people really figuring this out and how to make these experiences better. And I think that we will find that this kind of thing happens more and more. A lot of people that I talk to say, absolutely. If I don't have to get up, go drive somewhere, buy a cup of coffee that I don't want to have at least my first interaction with someone to figure out whether I would want to hire you to do a service for me, I can do a lot of that over a virtual call first. And then I think people want that second thing to be in person, but I think there's a lot of this time and energy and expense that particularly solo practitioners are spending that they're realizing, wow, you know, there's a lot of money spent networking that maybe I don't need to be doing as much. There's a couple of things you mentioned there. Networking is one of them. Just to touch on that, I'm very hopeful that we'll continue in some kind of hybrid form where people who are able to attend can be in person when it's safe to do so. And when there's weather elements introduced or illness or somebody can't attend that there's always from an inclusivity 
perspective, this hybrid opportunity for people to join remotely. So I'm hoping we're entering that kind of phase. We're touching on there. So people want to meet in person first. I would propose that if you are so good and so polished and thoughtful in your presence in the intake experience, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, if you don't need to be there physically, you could be so convincing virtually that you might open up the opportunity that your relationship could continue online. So I do productivity speaking and coaching and the coaching piece, largely I do virtually now, which is a bit of a relief because having to go there in person, but I think it very much depends on the other person's comfort in that space too. So you have a part of the equation to hold up and then you have to invite people into the experience and also see where they're at. I really do think you can create more of an in-person experience virtually. It truly is possible more than we first thought because of the length of time that we've been spending in this world. Yes, people, the energy isn't quite there. Well, you also need to know what to look for in the other person. And also, if you up your own energy, then more energy comes through the screen. Can you talk about how to do that? Like give us some practical guidance as, okay, I wanted this to be energetic, but I also don't want to lose myself and feeling like I'm over the top. We don't want to be that crazy person online, but the best tip that I usually tell my clients is think about however many people are on the call with you of like doubling that number because that will help you. So instead of just having a one-on-one conversation, think about what if this was a coffee meeting of say four people instead of just two, because you will naturally up your energy just a little bit more because we tend to guide our energy level to the size of the room and how many people are there, particularly for presentation. If you are giving a pitch to a potential client and it's the burden is kind of on you at this point of the conversation because you've been through the beginnings and then they really want to know what it is that you're going to do for them and the outcomes and how it works to work with you. How long does it last? And how many times are we going to need to meet? And all of those kinds of things. And can you teach me what to do, particularly if it is an organizational thing? That's very vulnerable. So as first of all, you have to have established some trust there, because if they're going to take their laptop around their messy office and show you what they want help with organizationally, that's kind of a vulnerable place to be. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of people listening that feel like, that can only be done in person. I really don't like doing it this way. I like being in the space and getting a feel for the space. Well, how do you figure out how to do that for yourself? How do you reconcile, I guess, with that? One of the ways is with that energy level, just upping it a little bit. The other thing that I think always helps, and it's so funny when I have people do this and I'll be like, oh, I just need you to sit up a little bit straighter. And they're like, what? And I was like, well, you're kind of leaning in or are you leaning on your desk right now? Oh, yeah. Stop leaning against the desk and sit up a little bit more like we were actually having a coffee conversation and we're sitting in a coffee shop with no arms on my chair or one of those cafe chairs. You're going to have better posture. Imagine you're in that coffee shop and you're going to the minute your posture is fixed a little bit by not sinking into your chair, by not leaning on your desk or wherever you've situated yourself then your body naturally will have a little bit more energy because you're not sunken. You know, the people that are sitting in their really comfy chairs at home, I'm always like, "Mm." 
Is this why newscasters, you're making me think about what I'm seeing on television too with news reports. A lot of people in Canada, and I see it in the States a little bit too, they're standing now. Does more energy come through your body because a posture standing is probably more upright? You're not usually in a slouch so much when you're standing unless you're really dejected. So is that part of what's going on there? I think that is a little bit of it. For some people, standing just opens their gesturing. It kind of, it like releases the arms a little bit so that they feel like, and a lot of it's your own confidence level. Whatever makes you feel good and look good is what everybody should be doing. And if that's standing up, I've started doing a lot of work with teachers actually, because they've all of a sudden been moved to, and I wrote a book just for them on closing the distance and distance learning, how to transfer their personality through the screen to their students, many of whom they didn't get to meet in person at the very beginning of the year. You just shout out the title of your book, just in case any listeners want to find it, because we are also running workshops and speaking about things. So I imagine there's some gems in there. If you could just share that with us, that would be great. It's Closing the Distance in Distance Learning, and you can find it on Amazon. It is both mask and virtual communication. So there's chapters for the teachers that are in the classroom, but are masked because that changes everything as well, as you mentioned at the beginning of of our talk here. The thing that I kind of didn't anticipate when I wrote the book over the summer, I was talking to teachers who were really struggling with their kind of terror of going virtual. They're like, we're being taught all this technology stuff and we're given apps and this and that, but I don't know what communication and collaboration and creating community with the students is what I'm most worried about. So it was really geared to that community building. And uh, I've had other people that have read it who are like, well, where's the book for business leaders that has this in it. So I said, maybe it'll have to become a series. I don't know. I do think so because you're a leaders, you're leaders in different ways. Leading a class, you're leading students, you're leading a team. There are a lot of parallels. Um, you could maybe take the same content and just give it a different title and market it. <laughs> You'd be probably off to the races. And back to the idea of standing, that was one of the things for teachers is you're used to standing and teaching. So sitting and teaching is just very different. And then you have your students who are real bumps on logs, generally through <laughs> the computer screen, at least for the middle school and high school teachers that I've talked to. Well, you get some adults that are bumps on logs too. So you do, you, you do. And they do. And I call that resting Zoom face. That is something to avoid. It's the like sitting with your hand, kind of like, you know, doing this thing because you're sitting. And people forget, I guess, that particularly if they've turned off their own camera, which they could. Sometimes that helps people when they turn off them. What you're hitting on then, if you are not presenting at your best and if you don't need to be giving feedback, although as speaker presenter, it's very helpful for us to understand how our information is landing by looking and seeing, you know, if you see someone sleeping, maybe you need to up your energy some, right? So we do get fed by that. At the same time, this whole Zoom fatigue thing is real. And if you are feeling that way, it is a kindness potentially to yourself and to the speaker to turn your camera off. What do you think about cameras on and off? To close on on the standing, it goes back to the earlier comment of whatever makes you most comfortable. And if standing, if you present better, or if it is something where you're giving a talk for a virtual conference or something like that, you may want that presence and that will help you feel more like in your element 
to be standing versus sitting? I was mentioning I'm emceeing an event coming up and I only see myself standing for that. For their short bursts, intermittent things, I can only see myself standing because to your point about gesturing and freeing up gesturing, that's going to allow me to be more animated. And breathing might be different too, standing versus sitting, unless you're very conscious of your posture sitting, right? So there's more openness, better voice support, all that stuff. Your voice will probably have more resonance. It will it will have a better chance of dropping a little bit lower, which is better for women to have more resonance coming through in their voice when we want to be persuasive and when we want to be listened to. Personally, I think the more you can help your presenter by leaving your camera on, the better. Because then your energy and your life is coming through the screen. Obviously, if you're super fatigued or there are 16 other things going on that's distracting you, then you're doing your presenter a favor by turning off your camera for a moment to take care of whatever chaos is going on around you. You know, if the kids have come in because it's a lunch and learn and so they're done with whatever school meeting they want at lunch or those kinds of things so that you're not just constantly looking away and just distracted can be helpful for the presenter. Just touching on that point too, because I've been on a number of calls where people are like, I'm just going to move where I am now. And they leave their video on. They're just listening. They're not looking in the camera. And all of a sudden this video feed of massively changing background visuals is distracting everybody. So being thoughtful, this is really interesting. I don't know how many people talk about it. Being thoughtful as a very thoughtful attendee. What am I giving back to the speaker so that we are in communication together? And then what am I doing to everybody else? So if you're going to be walking on a treadmill, maybe okay, maybe not okay, maybe not. There were a lot of people that were doing like the Zoom from their phone while they were like walking because it was still daylight, still daylight at seven or something. And so yes, it's a committee meeting and we're all meeting virtually because we can't meet live and in person. It's not a business thing per se, but it's still my perception of you as a person, as a communicator, bobbing around or the sound is terrible because you haven't muted yourself. And so all we're hearing is all this wind, you know? And so it is a two-way communication that we have to be very cognizant about both sides. Even when we're sitting and listening, that's where that resting Zoom phase, I call it neutral because most people listen and they're just listening. But the minute we don't think about just being a little pleasant while we're listening, there still needs to be the upturn in the corners of the mouth versus because our limbic brain, which is, we're going to get a little sciency here for a second, but the, the limbic brain that takes in that nonverbal communication, it is geared to protect us. It's that fight or flight. That's where that lives. And when we see neutral, we immediately think, oh no, bad news they don't like me, they don't believe what I'm saying, or they're angry. It's going in this whole other realm for them, how they're just perceiving you. And you think you're being a fantastic listener. You're sitting still, you're listening, but you're passive. And that passivity doesn't necessarily show up so much when we're in a, in a group setting and you're talking to the room. And again, it's that lunch and learn kind of thing. And you're sitting at your round table and there's six round tables. And so you're sitting and listening. The speaker doesn't feel it as much as when there's just these boxes on the screen and you're sitting totally neutral. I have to tell speakers to find the person in the box that is responding. 
We do that live too. Speakers will do that. They'll find the person. And I tend to try and be that person in an audience that's giving back. And I'll talk to the speaker after and they're like, thank you so much for the energy back. It's a big deal. So I think of somebody we both know, Mark Bowden, one of his tips, and he's a body language expert like yourself. He would say, stick a sticky note with a happy face by your camera to help you as a presenter, remember to also give back a lot of smiling Give that energy. It's that energy exchange. One of the best compliments I ever had was doing an interview for an article. I did an interview and at the end, it was on Zoom, even though I think it was just a written publication. He goes, you know, this really felt like it was face to face. <laughs> it was the best compliment anybody could have ever given was that, yes, all right, awesome. You felt heard, you felt the energy. And he said, huh, Yes, you really can. Because of course it was about virtual communication. And I was like, good, I've proved my point <laughs> with you. You've mentioned one comment about women's voices when they're lower, they have a little bit of more authority. What else should we think about? We've got both men and women in the profession, absolutely, but we do skew to having more women. So I do want to spend a little of time understanding what can women do? What opportunity is there in the virtual space now to really make sure we're communicating more effectively? I'm so glad that you're going here because this is something that I've been blogging about is women, we have an opportunity to own this virtual space and to rise in our chosen professions because in general, women do a little bit better on Zoom because for one, we tend to gesture from that chest level because of that nurturing nature. And we tend to be, you know, we wear our hearts on our sleeves stereotypically more than men. And that, so we tend to gesture from this kind of chest plane. And so that shows in our box more readily than men tend to gesture from the waist. And so they're gesturing all day long and we can't see anything that's going on. Most humans trust when they can see our hands. It's that whole from all from caveman days or the whole idea of the handshake was I'm not holding a weapon. Look, nothing to fear, right? And on Zoom, we don't know what's going on from the chest down. We just, I always tell people to scoot back from your camera. If I was back here, for example, and so the folks watching on YouTube will see, I just went back away from my desk a little bit and you can see a little bit more of my torso and people will say, oh, are you Italian? Because I talk with my hands a fair bit. You wouldn't notice unless I was intentionally holding my arms up, which feels a little awkward if you're going to do that. But naturally then with a bit of distance, of course, I'm a little further from the mic. So you'll hear the sound difference in that, but we can think about how we want to frame ourselves online and position the mic accordingly. So we give perhaps more of a frame. So we are capturing that men might want to be a little further back. So they're naturally capturing those gestures and women can be a little up close and intimate and still have some hand gesturing, which makes everybody feel safe. And women in general use even their shoulders a little bit more. And most of my time during the pandemic has been encouraging people to, okay, shoulders can tell us a lot if we know what they're communicating. And so I've been spending a lot of time about the secrets of shoulders because this is what we can see. And the best news is that the shoulder, what we see here is still the same thing that you see live. 
When you're sitting at a little cafe table with someone else, yes, you get more body language, but the thing you can always see is the same thing that we see on Zoom. It can hide a beer belly. Just from experience, it can hide, uh, it can hide a lot of things. And you're like, hello, whoa. The upper body, the shoulders, like actually where they move in space gives you a clue as to the decision-making process of the person that you're talking to. And it's fascinating when people, oftentimes when I do trainings, I'll now with the virtual thing, I'll put them into breakout rooms. And I said, just have a conversation and just prove to yourself that you can see it if you know what to look for. And they'll come back and they'll be like, wow, my shoulders are coming forwards or backwards. That means something different than if they're twisting or if they're tipping. The signals are all there. It's just nobody thought to look at that before. To like break it down and go, here's the manual of shoulders. The easiest one, particularly if people are only listening and they don't need to see what I'm doing, tipping is really the easiest one to explain because it makes absolute sense. When we talk about it, tipping is an evaluative signal. It's literally weighing the pros and cons with your body. So if you asked a client something like, which of these plans do you think you might want to revisit? Or which one of these options would you like to discuss further? Or do you think fits into your life or fits into what you want to to get out of our relationship? And they will probably go, Because your head went, yeah, and the head took the shoulders. Yep. And the head tip will go and the shoulders will tip because they're thinking, oh, well, on the one hand, you're right. It would be like a three-month thing and blah, blah, blah. Oh, but no, it's a little bit more money, but I really want them to come in and do it themselves. It's not like pouring more blood into one part of the brain and then another part. It's like the brain power is happening and it's literally, they're weighing that pro and con list in their head and it's coming through their body. So one of the things in there, you ask them with which, use the word which, that's a favorite word of mine, is because that makes people evaluate between two things and there's no right or wrong answer. If you say, what plan do you want to go with? Oh, what plan's the right plan? But if you say, which of the options? Sounds like something that you want to discuss further. They go, oh, which one do I? It keeps things going rather than kind of stopping the conversation, particularly if somebody is going to have reservations or is going to have objections to the price or the length or whatever it is. Our normal objections that we go through in our brains, when you use the word which, it helps you kind of get through those a little bit. And you can verify if they are evaluating you if you see them tipping. And then you'll realize, okay, well, I'm seeing them tipping, which is great because that means that they're evaluating. Now I'm going to take the next little leap and see if they'll go to close. And then you want to get them in that classic lean in that everybody, all the sales folks, you know, talk about, oh, well, when they lean in, you can still see if somebody's leaning in virtually, whether they're getting closer to the screen or not. And the same thing, if they recline, the only thing about if they go backwards, don't think you've lost them and don't think that they are not interested. Because from a body language theory perspective, that's the same plane of the body. It's called the sagittal plane, again, a big word. But To your brain, it's the same signal, whether you're leaning forwards or going backwards. And so they may have gone, yes, you're the answer to my prayers. And they're leaning back because they have in their own mind said yes, and they have closed the deal. 
there's some relief because the decision-making is over. Whereas leaning in, they're curious and they want more information. It's the walking away you have to worry about. If they're like, just like turn around and walk away. I think there are so many sales conversations that end up being closed too soon, like shut down because the person misreads the signal and thinks that the person's not interested because they've leaned back partially because all we really concentrate on is the lean in. But remember, you can only lean in so far, just like you don't want to tip over, your head will fall on the table. You will smack your nose if you go too far. So they have to recline. We need to take all of our body language more into context than we do. The internet is a great thing, but it's also a bullet point kind of thing. The blog with the top five things you should do or should never do, or and that puts us all in our head. And the relationship is here. The relationship doesn't live in your head. So we need to take in context all the body language that we're seeing and realizing that, oh, right, they're still interested. They're still talking. They've reclined, but I'm not getting the other things that they've shut down. You need to take signals kind of in multiples because they will be there. Just like the crossed arms doesn't mean that somebody has closed off to you. How many photographs do you see of people still with some kind of arms crossed? There's a whole lot of meanings with that. There's a confidence pose in that as well. So it doesn't mean necessarily a barrier. The chin needs to be at a certain, you know, (laughs) and the arms are crossed and every lawyer portrait on the planet is the scowly look with the arms crossed. And I'm sort of like, ah, do I want to tell you my innermost thoughts as what's going on with me financially or in my marriage or whatever, you know, depending on the type of law, do I want to share those things with you when you look so grumpy, (laughs) you know, when I'm scrolling through the internet and I'm looking for my lawyer? Yes, I want them to be tough, but if it's not going to be litigated, then maybe I want you to be human. And maybe I want you to smile at me. It's interesting because my headshot that is used for this podcast as well, I have my hand on my chin. I'm looking to use it somewhere else too. And I put an image out and got a lot of feedback. And there were quite a few comments about people saying, oh, I don't like that. It's closed. Actually, Mark came back with a comment for me and he said, no, that's great use of hand on the chin because your smile is genuine and it's in your eyes. It's not just one thing. You're communicating with your whole self. And what are you putting forward in that? What would you say to people do? I'm thinking if they were to observe themselves, which is a really good practice. So if you've been on a Zoom call and have a video, could you even observe yourself and see what you're putting out there to people? How would you ask people to look at that and be critical? This is sort of a big closing question, I think. How do you examine what you've done? And can you listen to your gut? Or do you need to understand this theory to really make sense of it? How do people approach that? Most people will never do it because nobody likes to look at themselves. It takes a lot for somebody to record themselves and then to watch it back and see what it says. I've learned so much from doing that media for about 11 years now on television and looking, I remember seeing myself on one segment and I was tucking my hair, which was marginally longer than my hair now, which is very short. There was no hair to tuck. I don't know what I was doing, but I caught that and I didn't do it again. You do have to look at yourself to see it or have a very trusted friend that you can be very, very honest. If you had to caricature me, this is usually the way I frame it with clients. Think about what people will caricature of you. If they had to go on Saturday Night Live and be you, what would they pick out? What's your movement signature pose or habit that you have? 
that somebody else would pick up on, which is exactly what those comedians are doing and the, the improv actors are picking out something that is recognizable in that person. And then you need to decide whether that's something that is, that's a good signature about you, or as you said, the hair tuck is something that you want to get rid of. And it is difficult to look at yourself, but once you do, then you also look and say, I would litmus test it on, am I coming across the way that I feel that I'm coming across? Because sometimes that's a big awareness for folks is to be like, oh, wow, I feel a lot more energetic than I look on the screen, or I thought I was smiling and I guess I really wasn't, or I feel like I'm moving a lot, but you know what, in that screen, because I look really flat on that screen versus how I assume I look. Because a lot of us just think that we come across in a different way. And sometimes it does take somebody looking at it for you, but you can do a lot of it on your own if you have the chutzpah to do it. And now's a great time because you have the opportunity to record something and just get on with a friend or have a meeting with somebody on your team and say, hey, do you mind if I record this? Because I just want to take a look at what I look like. Particularly if you're trying to use the camera to talk, then you can't really see what else is happening. So you have to go from that camera to looking at the other person to talking to the camera to looking down and you don't necessarily see what you are doing unless some people are also enamored of themselves and you know those folks too, that because you're on screen for a little while there, it was like a mirror. You can't not look at yourself when you pass by a mirror. <laughs> it's oftentimes. And I felt like Zoom was that way at the beginning because you're talking to me, but you felt like they were talking almost to themselves. <laughs> If I'm looking right now, for example, and we're, we're doing this through Zoom, if I'm looking at your image on screen, I'm not connecting with you through the camera anymore. So you don't know where I'm looking exactly. You're assuming I'm looking at me. I could be looking at me. You wouldn't know the difference. What's interesting, there's a disconnection from the camera at that moment. And so if you are able to look at the camera directly and encourage more of that, you will have a richer connection with whoever you're speaking with, when you do need to get reactions from a client, then it's worth looking at their face. So you get the auditory, but you're also getting the visual clues, which come on video. So before we started this call, I prefaced with you by saying, you'll see me look down. Sometimes I am taking some notes and that was me prefacing. Well, I'm going to break connection with you and here's why. So I think it might be useful to do that in client situations too. So they understand, oh, they're not getting bored with me. They're not doing something else. They're still engaged in the conversation here and it's relevant to what we're doing. It doesn't diminish trust between us. I would say too, for these virtual kinds of communication, I know there's a lot of people that have an external camera that's not necessarily connected to their computer so that they're still on the computer while they're on the call. And if that's the case, then you really do need to preface it of, I'm going to be taking notes on my computer during this call, because otherwise I think the quick jotting down of a note is faster and doesn't have the same feel of absolute disconnect as when you're typing at the same time. I find for clients, I'll say, if you're leading the meeting and you really, because transferring from a written notepad into like formal meeting minutes or something like that was an extra time for you. But just let everybody know I'm still here. I'm really in the meeting and I'm working on our meeting. I'm not working on another meeting because everybody's very suspicious. It's that commitment to presence. It's super important. 
So many insights in there from what's in the shoulders to women potentially owning this space because of the way we gesture up here at the chest. Just so many rich tips. So I want to thank you very, very much for joining us today and sharing all these practical ways we can really become better communicators now and in the future, because like you said, this is not going anywhere. I'm pretty sure about that. I want to invite all our listeners to find out more about Allison and how she can help you at movingimageconsulting.com. That's a wrap for this episode of Standout, the podcast to help people in organizing and productivity industry better your business. Tune in to more episodes at napopodcast.com. And until the next one, stay safe, be kind to yourself and enjoy this journey. And now with Allison's help, you can go out there and be better communicators. Thanks again, Allison. Thanks. That's all for today's episode of Standout brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit napo.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters, and more.